0: Hello, and welcome to the uh, next episode of Hope Interrupted, the podcast. Uh, We're here today with Jennifer Mooney, who is my co-author on our new book, Hope Interrupted. Hi, Jennifer.
1: Hi, Byron.
0: How's it going? Hope
1: Interrupted has been in pre-sales now since March 1, comes out May 6th. We're doing well in sales. Um, For those of you who haven't checked it out, www.hopeinterrupted.com. Our Cincinnati premiere is May 6th at the Mercantile and Byron and I are pretty happy that we're gonna be on C-SPAN book TV.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's gonna be pretty exciting. I am super excited about that. May 6th, did you say?
1: May 6th. And if you go to the Mercantile website, or any of our social media, which is listed um, on Spotify, too. You'll see all the coordinates for how to see us us there, talking about the book. And we're going to be talking about the book a lot. But today is really talking about great guests and our second guest today, second guest on the podcast, and Byron will introduce him.
0: Yeah, so so I've been waiting on this one for a little while, Jennifer, because what we have here is 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 someone who's a trailblazer. Has been a trailblazer in his career, which which now spans is going on its fifth decade. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but Again,
1: our, I'm the oldest on the podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by are, a little bit, very little bit. You are, you are, but but you know, you're you're always uh, fresh faced and you know ready to roll. So you know, it's only you saying that. It's not anybody who can tell. But back to our guest, Harold Brown, who is the new Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. That's pretty significant, Harold Brown. Welcome to the program. Thank you.
2: Glad to be here. Congratulations to the two of you on Hope Interrupted.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, wow, Harold, you know, I've been reading about your appointment in the past few weeks. And the thing that's so significant for me about this particular appointment is that it's one of the very, very few such appointments in okay. symphony orchestras in the United States of America. So it right. couldn't come at uh, in a more amazing time.
2: Not only with symphony
0: orchestras, but for per-
2: large performing arts organizations in general. Uh, you may have read that. The Metropolitan Opera, which is the country's largest performing arts organization, just in February, hired its first ever chief diversity officer, uh, a Cincinnati native, Marcia Sells, in fact. Yes. But uh, yeah, we're one of only a couple, maybe maybe three, that have made this kind of commitment to DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So it is an honor, it is new and exciting, and it's a chance to, to lead Uh, to lead uh, the orchestra community, if you will, in this regard. Great.
1: So Harold, you're coming in at a time which is an interesting time for any um, live theater, live performances in that um, we're hopefully knock on wood coming out of COVID. Hopefully we'll be able to seat more people in venues. Yeah. So so talk about that for a few minutes. you guys are probably having a lot of discussions um, down about that at historic Music Hall and, and the great renovation and what can be done now in terms of seating folks.
2: Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm on, I'm in day seven. Uh, so, <laughs> so my knowledge is not as deep as others perhaps, but I do know this. Um, the orchestra uh, did shut down as did all the arts organizations for a while, but in January uh, kicked off a series of digital performances, as well as some limited seating performances. My wife and son and I went two weeks ago to um, uh, the Travel with Mozart 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 uh, event that included uh, a fabulous African-American violinist um, and Melissa White. And so they're doing those and it's only about 25% capacity. We're hoping that that gets raised uh, in the next couple of months, maybe to 50%. And, and by the fall, we'll see what happens. Uh, not everybody's comfortable. Going back, uh, but um, right now you can do social distancing with
0: about twenty-five to thirty percent capacity in music hall. Yeah, and you know, Cincinnati Herald is 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 one of the sort of shining stars when we're talking about when we're talking about it's dedicated ded- dedication to music, you know, Mayfest goes back way, way back. Right. Um and you know. We, we play way above our, 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 our fighting weight here. We fight, well, should I say, we fight way above our class, our weight class. And that's, that's because of a committed, you know, uh, people who are committed to the orchestra and seeing it thrive all these years. Um, as the first um, chief diversity and inclusion officer, you're sort of charged with something different because let's face it, The audience and the patrons for for orchestra in any city is traditionally not diverse. So can you talk about the difference that you hope to make in that area? Yeah, you're right. It's one of the
2: more culturally uh, homogeneous uh, institutions in our country, symphonies, operas, ballets um, and um, it's a steep climb to, to change that, but there is a very compelling business case to be made if you start with that. Um, uh, when you look around uh, uh, a CSO performance, Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra performance, you see a lot of white hair, <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of folks that, quite frankly, uh, won't be around in 20 or 30 years. And so, it and we know what the demographics in our country are portending heavily minority. Uh, white people are having fewer kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so those traditional patrons, donors, volunteers, staff members, musicians, um, uh, it's going to look different in in the decades to come. And so so there is a business case to be made for really focusing on DEI, creating a pipeline of musicians um, of all races, of all geographies, Um, that may not have have, uh, been focused on in in previous years. Uh, And of course, there's also uh, a focus um, internally. So the DEI work is also looking at the people who are currently there. How are they experiencing the organization? Do they feel a sense of inclusion and belonging? Are they respected and valued? So we'll be looking at the internal workings and, and the staff, but also looking externally to the community and letting the community know that this orchestra is for you as well. It's not just for the, the few elites that have traditionally patronized it, but uh, the orchestra is doing some things they're changing a lot of the programming and events to appeal to a broader swath of the population in the community uh, with the idea that the traditional music will always be there, will always be the bread and butter Um, It's one of the best in the world, frankly, but it will also attract other folks who can get uh, hooked on that kind of music, which is what my wife and I have done. We didn't grow up with a lot of classical music in our home, not at all. And so in in more recent years, our son plays the cello um, and um, classical roots drew us in, which is where they have a large, mostly African-American gospel choir combined with the orchestra. It's a fabulous performance. I know you've been, Byron, I don't know if you've been, Jennifer, it's an yeah. annual event that kind of drew us in. And so now we're attending a, you know, a Beethoven event or a Mozart. You know, so uh, that's the idea, that we can bring yeah. people in um, by appealing to some of the things that, that, uh, that they really love um, and then expose them maybe to some things that they hadn't thought were for them or that they may not have felt that uh, would be uh, uh, attractive to them and hopefully expand our audience and our base uh-huh.
1: That way is part of your objective. Byron and I were talking a little earlier today, preparing to speak with you, and we were talking about you know who's in an orchestra, what people look like who're in the orchestra, what kind right. of um, where they come from. Is part of the objective also to, frankly, get younger people. And I don't think of this as necessarily just a race, but an but age. We've talked mm-hmm. about age. No question. Um, yeah. but. But to to um to get those younger younger folks to be interested yep. like your son is in actually, yeah, so there is
2: to there's a lot. I'm sorry,
1: yeah, there's a
2: lot going on in that regard. I think uh, during the interview process, uh, I was told that uh, tenure was recently given to four new musicians, and they were all Asian American females under the age of 35. Um, my understanding is that there's only one African-American in the orchestra and he's been there since 1975. Wow. So that's a problem, right, in terms of diversity. And right. so, so yeah, and then the board has added some new members, many of them younger, uh, several of them are people of color. So they have taken some pretty, some pretty aggressive steps to address uh, the age as well as the uh, ethnicity uh, and gender uh, gaps. Um, to be more reflective of the community uh, and to make the, themselves more relevant to, to broader swaths of the community. So yes, that's that's gonna be a focus as well.
0: You know, Harold, um, every time that I've gone to the symphony, symphony orchestra, and it, it hasn't been a ton of times, but it's, it's, it's probably less than 20, definitely more than 10 since I've been here. Um, I always leave thinking, oh my gosh, why don't I come more often? Right. I'm always so uplifted. This year, especially, I'm gonna, you know, we we have that pent up demand energy that we want to come out oh, yeah. and and enjoy uh, the orchestra. So I'm gonna buy. If I don't buy a season pass, I'm definitely gonna buy, you know, group passes. But I do want to talk about accessibility. Uh, some people do think, and you've talked about it this already, but just 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 elaborate a little bit. What does what is cost going to look like um, as we're trying to you know, um, obtain different kinds of um, patrons. Right. You know, everything needs to needs to, as you said, classic. You don't. You, you don't. Um, you, you're not going to. We're going to have different kinds of, uh, maybe different kinds of composers or or what have you. But you're, the classical music is the root, is the is the base of this. But yeah. how can patrons can patrons expect? You know um varying um prices and you know packages and that kind of thing that's that's a yeah. long-winded question yeah
2: no that's no, a good question and, and i'm really pleased to say that there are already some opportunities there so i mentioned the event that we went to a couple of weeks ago um that was a 75-minute program with no intermission Wow. And the and tickets were uh, some tickets are available for I think as low as maybe fourteen dollars. So part of this effort to make the orchestra accessible and relevant to a broader population involves looking at thinking about pricing. So there is already um, a series of programs that are being planned or already on the books, frankly, that uh, have lower costs um, and are shorter because we know that's also an issue. Not everybody is conditioned to sit through, you know, a two and a half hour uh, orchestra uh, performance with a 15 minute intermission. You know, when each piece might be 25 or 30 or 35 minutes. Sure. Um, so that you know, takes some conditioning perhaps. To, so there's a recognition that in order to get, you know, some other folks who are not used to that, um, there's, so the variety is going to be there. There's a series right. of programs. So check out the website. And I think you'll be surprised to see the, the diversity that's already being planned and there's more on the way. We're, it's not, we're not, we haven't arrived, uh, but they're, they're taking, I think, surprising steps. Most people don't know what's going on with regard to the accessibility issue. So, uh, but importantly, we also need to make sure that when folks come, that they have a good experience. Yes, It can't be that they feel like I'm not welcome here. I'm treated, you know, in a way that's not uh, respectful. Um, and so to me, that's also an important part of this. And we'll be working to to make sure that we understand the experience that people are having and if problems are identified, then let's take those up, let's, let's recognize that and, uh, and make sure this is not just about getting them in the door, but it's about getting them to come back because they had a really profound and memorable uh, and pleasant experience. Yes,
0: yes. yes.
1: Harold let's uh, let's talk for a few minutes about you because you have a really um, interesting life story and you've accomplished a lot of things in in only 56 years, <laughs> 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 including um, including a Harvard education and a lot of work in education. but take us back to we know that a lot of our readers and our audience is really interested in hearing hopeful stories hearing about how, where someone might have been born and what it, what it took to get to be where you are right now.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I, you know, I don't want to over dramatize my um, upbringing, but I will uh, uh, tell you what I think has been important to me. I mean, I grew up on what we like to, sort of jokingly call the mean streets of Oxford. Um, if you've ever been there, you know why that's kind of joking. Uh, um, it's uh, you know it's known as a sort of a very cushy college town, very safe, very you know uh, very uh, convenient and, and accommodating for for folks who are not streetwise. Let's put it that way. But anyway, we back then you know I grew up in the '70s for the most part, um, born in, in the late '60s or mid '60s. But there were lots of African American families, believe it or not. Uh, many of them were mine. My family migrated up from Alabama in the '50s, and my brother, my father had five or six brothers and a sister, and they all had four or five kids. So we were probably a third of the African-American population. But when I grew up about a few, you know, just a few blocks from campus, there were lots of African-American kids and families and four African-American churches. Uh, that's not the case now, because folks who have uh, grown up there, many of them have moved away because there just isn't opportunity unless you work for the university. So my family was not affiliated with the university. We were working class. My father was a construction laborer. My mother only worked some time, and she uh, she had different odd jobs. Uh, fifth of six kids, none of them went to college. Uh, um, in fact, two of my four older siblings didn't even graduate high school on time. They went back later. So it was just this mixed uh, kind of situation. We were heavily into the church. But for me, I was a Head Start kid. Uh, but And so I had a lot of uh, um, early academic success. All of my friends were white, kids whose parents were college professors affiliated with the university uh, in fact when i graduated ultimately i was one of seven african-americans out of about 275 kids and uh, so what is most important to me were all of my uh, grade school teachers i can name them i'm 56 years old i could name them as if they were sitting right here with me now all older white women with cigarette breath and coffee breath, breathing over my shoulder, telling me you're as good as everybody else. You can do everything they're doing, and and holding my feet to the fire. High expectations, as I like to say. It was about support, not sympathy. They didn't pat me on the head and say, "Well, you didn't, you know, your parents aren't college professors. You didn't grow up on that side of town, so we're going to dumb down your education." Not at all. They were tough, and and I, and I did very well. Fast forward. My father passed away when I was 14. Um, um, and um, so that was life changing for our family, obviously. And, um, and then when I got to high school, um, this is a true story. Uh, somehow I had become good friends with a young Jewish guy named Ken, whose father was a professor at Miami. And um, one day he was over at the house, and we were looking through all this college stuff, college brochures. And I said, he said, where are you going to go? I said, well, I'll probably go to Miami. It's safe. My mother was beginning to become ill. Uh, only my younger sister was at home. I said, I'll just, you know, I know the financial aid director. I can probably, you know, get some good aid. I applied to other places, but I was pretty much sure I was going to stay there. He was like, you know, you need, to, you need to branch out you should try some of this. He said, my older sister, two years older, is at Harvard. And through the course of the conversation, he basically dared and talked me into applying to Harvard and I, in addition to some other places. And I was like, okay. I went into my guidance counselor who had been there about 800 years. Uh, a stodgy old white gentleman who was very unpopular was a guidance counselor, um, and he told me I, I told him what I was going to do. And he told me you probably can't get in, and even if you do, you probably can't afford it. You probably can't afford it. Just go to Miami or go to Central State. That's literally what he told me. At that point, Central State was on the verge of closing down because they were having financial struggles. I mean, it was just. And I'm a, I'm a straight A student, 3.87 GPA, senior class president, athlete. And he told me, don't even bother. So the guy who needed the college counseling didn't get it. right? So, But fortunately, uh, we were people of faith. And um, fast forward to April of that year, letter came in the mail. Not only did I get in, but I got almost a full scholarship. Um, And so my mother, who was not college educated, she said, I don't know much about college. I know that name, though. You're going. And um, so we went. Had four fabulous years. Here's another quick story. In my entryway of 18 people at the freshman dormitory, there was a beautiful young lady from San Francisco named Gillian Benet, they played the harp. Uh, didn't really know her that well, never saw her again after her freshman year. 2013, a Cincinnati Enquirer story read, meet Gillian Sella, principal harpist of the CSO. She and her family live in Indian Hill. So um, so we've reconnected and she was the president of the Harvard Club of Cincinnati, um, but we kind of laugh about that um but anyway so uh so that's how that happened and um i you know when i went i was felt like okay here i am from a public school Taiwan is a, a fine school but i'm gonna be there with all these private school kids you know wealthy kids oh my god am i gonna be all right and turned out to be fine um i did very well uh majored in government and um so that's that's up through college yeah
1: i'm yeah. laughing to myself a little because you probably don't know this so I'm a very lapsed Jew who had um, education and higher ed pounded into me. And in our book, we cover a lot about growing up Jewish, growing up black, but that your Jewish friend was the one who said, you need to shoot high, you need to go for this. That doesn't surprise me.
2: Well, here's another twist that might bring a tear to your eye. uh many years later when we were talking about this because he lived in California for a while and has moved back and moved back to Cincinnati. But um we were talking his dad um ran the Hillel Center, the Campus Hillel Center. And what we discovered was Campus at huh? Campus Hillel in Cincinnati. Campus Hillel Center in Cincinnati yeah. Oxford. Miami Hillel. University. So. Okay. He he my dad, he had hired my dad to clean that building at night. His dad had hired my dad to clean it. And I remember running the buffer. I was helping my father when I was 8, 9, 10 years old, cleaning the Hillel Center. So little do we know, his dad had hired my dad. Ken would be the one talking me into going to an Ivy League institution. So we we remained very good friends for, for many, many years. But that was just kind of an, an interesting twist to that story we realized years later. You just never know who's going to be influential in your life. I was a head start kid. I had a big brother who was a Miami graduate student who really put the whole college idea in my head, your college material, you're going to go. You um, just never know what kind of interventions and supports um, can be available um, to, to give you what you need to be hopeful and to have a goal to strive for. And I'm, I'm never hesitant to thank folks and to recognize that we all need, a, you know, we all need support. But again, the issue is not—it's it's not about sympathy; it's about support. It's just really important to, to remember that because because you lower expectations when you feel sorry for people, and that's not what we need.
1: Well, it also shows why those of us who are grown-ups, because we are right now, why it's important that we encourage young people in the right yes. way.
2: Right. Even when it doesn't look like there's a pathway, encourage them. Keep looking. Keep trying.
0: Uh, there, there can usually be a way made. You know, Harold, what a, what a wonderful story. And I kind of know this story, but every time I hear it, uh, I want to hear it again. You know, I'm like the kids saying more more more. Because it's so important, it's so important. You know, Jennifer and I again, we we do talk a lot about a lot of things in this book. We actually also talk about chance meetings and what you might pour into someone yeah. when you never know it. That's right. Um, so so that that's a that's a really terrific example, you know, of that. And I also know with your work in education, one of the things that that used to stand out to me when you would make when you would talk to students or anyone, you'd always talk about how uh, someone doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care.
2: Absolutely. I didn't make that up, but one of the things that we quickly learned when we were doing high school reform, or, you know, at works Foundation, we got a lot of money from the Bill & Melinda Gates Foundation and others to go in and take on some of the biggest, baddest high schools in the country. And, um, and one of the things we discovered right away as we talked to students and surveyed students was uh, the lack of personalization um, you know basically students will tell you three things they don't care about me what they're teaching is not relevant and, and and it's boring and so we would say we can we can take that on we can show them and demonstrate that we care we can make it interesting and relevant and and we can show them how this is going to help them in their futures and so that, that that kind of simple formula was the basis for a lot of the reform work that we did in taking on these schools because it because it was really all it had to be about students, um, so I really enjoyed that. My you know my first job was at Miami University, running multicultural enrollment, a, right. a place that had struggled for many many years, not only attracting but retaining students of color. And those who did come and stay, including many friends of mine that, that went there, badmouthed the place. You know, said so they did not have a good experience, even though we know it's a fine institution, but it did not do much for students. We were recruiting students out of Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Coming to the little old Oxford, Ohio, and really offering nothing for these students in terms of their cultural or social uh, uh, lives, and so we did a, a I think, a, a marvelous job of bringing in more students of color. But we also had to really try to work on the environment and the experience that those students had once they got there, so we wouldn't have this revolving door. And then at KnowledgeWorks, you know, like I said, we were involved in school reform for probably about sixteen years, so um, you know we learned a lot about uh, how to turn around low-performing schools. Uh, make them more student focused and have these students, to to the point of your book, have these students have hope, you know, because it really, you know, we've always talked about uh, students being uh, uh, lifelong learners and being self-directed, taking charge of their learning. If they don't have hope, if they don't see that it's going to pay off, they don't see that if I stay with it, if I stick with it, something good is going to happen. Life happens to them. And it's just very easy to say it's not worth it. You no, know, life happens. I have a baby. I have to go work. I had an illness. Something happens and this is it isn't worth it. It's not going to pay off for me. So we have to instill hope at an early age that if you stay with it, if you keep your keep your nose to the ground um, and, and do the best that you can, there will be something. And we got to fulfill that promise, by the way, if we can't just give me an empty promise. That's right. But, but we've got to right. make sure that they understand that an early age. Stick in there because that's that's what's going to happen if you if you if you just hang in there and, and do it, get it done.
0: You know, that's gosh, that's so important. I'm I'm trying to drill that to my with my own child right now, yeah. not giving up so easily yeah. because there, there's so much, so many opportunities out there for you.
1: So, so I have a I have a question about that too. So between Byron and I, there are seven girls. And they range from Byron having the youngest to me having the oldest. Yep. And most of these kids who are not kids anymore, minor minor mini grown-ups. They think they're fully grown up but you know what i'm saying they the the world that they've cut their teeth on has been nine you know they remember the first thing they remember is 9 11 and some hateful years we've had and that we've been in wars for constant wars in one way or another and the economy hasn't been great and one of my daughters likes to tell me how my generation has wrecked the environment for her I think that might be a little true, but what do you, I'm sure you hear these same sorts of things from young people, what do you tell sure.
2: them? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of thoughts. One is um, at the same time that we know all of those things exist, uh, there's also reason to be positive and hopeful. Um, I think what the second thing is, you know what, we talked, when I talked to, to young people, instead of the old question that they used to be asked of us about do you wanna be, We really try to focus on what do you want to solve, what do you want to work on, what problem, what challenge do you want to solve? And so, when you talk about the environment, or talk about other issues that are going on in our community, try to turn that around to an opportunity to make a difference, to turn it around. Um, And so, that's one of my favorite questions to pose to young people: is you know, you you know, when we were kids, a fireman, a policeman, a lawyer, maybe, or whatever, postman, you know. um, uh, and now that does, those, those labels, those titles, those jobs really don't really exist as they did back then, not in the same way. And so to me, that's much more interesting to young people. What, you know, what is it that you think about when um, you don't have to be thinking, you know, what is it that you, that weighs on you or that, you know, if you didn't, if money weren't an object, what would you do? What would you be doing? What would you be working on? I just find that kids respond to that much more easily. But again, I think, um, the equity issues are so uh, massive and pervasive that it is extremely difficult for so many of our young people to be hopeful, even talented ones. Um, many of them have no role models around them. They don't have anybody around them that, that where they see the payoff. We used to hear that all the time. Nobody in my family is educated. No, I've never seen education pay off. So why should I believe in that? Um, and so we as we as adults, we have to recognize that what these kids go through and the, the, the pressures they face, unlike anything we ever experienced, um, and we have to be there for them, and we have to instill hope, and we have to help that payoff that if you stay in school, we're going to find a scholarship for you. We're going to get you employed. We're going to, whatever it is that you want to do, um, that has to be the promise
0: for our young people. Mm. You know, that's a, that's a great that's a great way to end this conversation, I think, Harold. What, what a delight it has been uh, to have you on the show today. My pleasure, I appreciate the opportunity. And, well, Harold Brown, the new uh, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer uh, at Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Um, those of you who've heard this program before, you know we like to end uh, with uh, with a hopeful moment. And uh, we try to find something that's positive across the country to talk a little bit about. And today's hopeful moment is brought to us by Jennifer. So I'm gonna turn that over to you, Jennifer. I understand you got a great story uh, about a young man in a letter.
1: We have, it's good that we've been talking about young people today. This is an outstanding young man. This uh, we found in the Washington Post. He wrote, a, he wrote a letter on February 27, 2021, and it goes like this. He put it on LinkedIn with his dad's encouragement. My name is Ryan Lowry. I'm 19 years old, live in Leesburg, Virginia, and I have autism. I also have a unique sense of humor and gifted at math, really good with technology and a really quick learner. I'm interested in a job in animation or IT. I realize that someone like you will have to take a chance on me. I don't learn like typical people do. I would need a mentor to teach me, but I learn quickly. Once you explain it, I get it. I promise that if you hire me and teach me, you'll be glad that you did. I'll show up every day, do what you tell me and work really hard. Please let me know if you would like to talk about this with me. Thank you. Sincerely, Ryan Lowry. And LinkedIn crashed shortly after this because it got so much action.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. He's heard from a lot of folks. A lot of people are offering to help him. He's getting job offers. But again, it shows by having a little bit of nerve and courage and taking a step how one letter and a few thoughts can really put someone on the map.
0: And again, Harold, that that kind of goes back to what you were just saying, right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Don't give up.
0: Don't absolutely, give don't up. Give up. Yeah. Uh, Before we let you go, Harold, you mentioned uh, the website for CSO, and uh, we will go to it if it's at the top of your um, if if it's at the top of your brain. uh, I'd love to hear that website.
2: www.cincinnatysymphony.org.
0: Okay, we will make sure we go to that website and see the exciting programming that you have. Again, thank you for being with us today and um, we'll see and hear. You all uh, a little bit later on the next episode of the Hope Interrupted
2: podcast. I hope to see you at Music Hall not to, in the not too distant
0: future. Oh, and I
1: weird. I close with what I did in many of my letters and today keep hope alive.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you talk to you soon. Bye.